Welcome to the One in Five of Us Changing the Mental Health Landscape podcast. We are working to stop the stigma and start the conversation about mental health. One in five people will experience a mental health condition, but it takes on average eight to 10 years for someone to seek treatment. Hi, I'm Nancy Miller, the founder and executive director of One in Five, and I'm thrilled to host this podcast to help educate our community around mental health and wellness and to empower you to start the conversation. And I'm Kayla Wood, the social media specialist at One in Five. Together, we can stop the stigma and start the conversation. You belong here. We belong together. Today, we're talking with Brandon J. Johnson, the creator of the Black Mental Wellness Lounge on YouTube and Instagram. He also serves as the co-lead of the National Action Alliance for Suicide Prevention's Faith Communities Task Force. Brandon is a tireless advocate for positive mental health and suicide prevention services, both across the country and within the local community of Baltimore, Maryland. Brandon, thank you so much for being here. Sure, absolutely. Um, First of all, thank you for for having me on. I'm so excited to be a part of this, and I've connected with you all before and the work that you all are doing. And so... Um, definitely a supporter of, of the mission that you all have laid out and the, the great work that you all are doing for uh, for youth. And so, uh, so yes, I do uh, work at SAMHSA. For those who don't know, Nancy Substance Abuse Mental Health Services Administration, which is a division of the Department of U.S. Health and Human Services. I do want to say as a part of that, just to give a disclaimer, uh, today on the podcast, I'm not representing SAMHSA or the federal government in any way. I'm representing myself, but just talking um, about the work that I do. And so I've been at SAMHSA for, it was four years last month. And um, <clears throat> during my time there, uh, my primary role has been working as a government project officer. And so what that entails is uh, overseeing the the grant funds that we give out um, at SAMHSA. And there are a number of grant programs that we have there. Um, most notably is our Garrett Lee Smith Youth State and Tribal Grant Program, um, which also has a campus um, arm as well. And so um, we really work with communities across the country. They're given out to states, tribes, and territories um, to really impact youth and, and young adult uh, suicide. And so um, the grants are particularly for um, addressing suicide in ages 10 to 24. And so, um, you know, some really good work comes out of that. Um, there are a number of other grant programs that we have there. One called Zero Suicide, which focuses on healthcare systems. Native Connections focuses specifically on tribal organizations, and I'm a part of both of those grant programs. Um, and I also oversee the Suicide Prevention Resource Center, um, so most notably known as the SPRC, and their website is sprc.org. But if there is a suicide prevention resource that you're looking for anywhere, go there. If there is a specific group you want to work with, go there. If there is, you know, a specific document, fact sheet, whatever, go there. Um, and they're funded by by SAMHSA to uh, to create those resources, webinars, all that good stuff, trainings, and everything that you'll see on their website is 100% free um, to to the public. And so, along with that, um, at SAMHSA, a couple of other things that I do. One um, subject matter expert with uh, faith communities and suicide prevention. So I co-led an initiative called uh, Faith Hope Life, which is a division of the National Action Alliance for Suicide Prevention. And there we equip faith communities 
um, any faith community, regardless of their creed, um, equip them to get engaged in suicide prevention, to understand suicide, what their role is, how they can help um, individuals and communities, um, you know, really be be able to to deal with a, a tough subject and one that faith communities traditionally haven't been a part of. They haven't been a part of that conversation. And so um, many faith communities are understanding that they have such a, a pivotal role in suicide prevention. And so we're there to help them um, to be, become a part of that, as well as um, I do a lot of work with, uh, as a subject matter expert um, and point person at SAMHSA for uh, Black youth uh, and suicide, so particularly our younger children. And so I do a lot of work um, there as well, but that's really um, my role there at SAMHSA. That's awesome. Um, and I, I kind of want to start actually talking a little bit about that faith-based um, work that you do. Um, so we talk about this a lot with, um, you know, within one in five and on the podcast, how faith is such a major protective factor. Um, but it's not the only protective factor. Um, so can you kind of like, I don't know, take that and run with it a little bit? <laughs> <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. So, um, so faith communities are a big part of suicide prevention and one that we're um, starting to um, tap into more, engage with more. Um, if you go to svrc.org, you'll see um, the comprehensive approach to, to suicide prevention, um, which was created some years back uh, with a number of experts. And so as a part of that, um, the community key piece is, is key. So having communities members being engaged in, um, you know, identifying persons, helping to support people, helping with protective factors, increasing help-seeking behaviors, making connections to, to crisis, uh, you know, how, however you want to, you know, plug faith communities in there, there are different places that they fit um, in, in that conversation. And so, um, you know, especially in providing individuals with a sense of purpose, a sense of belonging, their shared community there, like there are people that um, you know, you're able to, uh, to connect with. And so for a long time, um, you know, mental health and suicide prevention have been kind of taboo. You know, they've been, um, you know, we've had some not so helpful, you know, thoughts around, um, around suicide. And so many faith communities have, um, have now, you know, like released additional statements, you know, evolving their stance on that. And so we want to be there to help them, um, you know, to to do whatever they want to do additionally to help um, individuals as well. And so faith communities and faith and spirituality is part of a larger, um, you know, system of, of protective factors. There's, um, you know, there's a ton depending on your population, but for, you know, younger children and a lot for males, it's like physical activity, you know, it's also being able to you know, build up your skills and resiliency and, and coping mechanisms, um, doing active coping. So understand what's the stressor and how to have something in place to deal with the stressor. And so, you know, faith communities can help with that. They can help to build those things as well. And so we want to create community where we have different places helping and providing different protective factors um, to create this comprehensive approach to suicide prevention. Great. 
I know one of the one of the you um, mentioned it a little bit about the um, the the Black Mental Health um, Wellness Lounge. Can you go into a little bit more detail how that came to be and what it consists of, sure. and how people can get involved and support you? Absolutely, absolutely. So uh, the Black Mental Wellness Lounge is my baby. It is <laughs> my my COVID <laughs> baby. That's that's what I've what I've called it, and it started uh, I guess in April is when the first video came out. But how it started was that um, this was COVID, you know, obviously transformed uh, so much of our society and things started to, to shut down really in mid-March. Like that's when, you know, we started to see schools close, businesses close, um, workplaces, all sorts of things. And so um, around that time also, we started to see civil unrest because of um, you know, issues around around race. And we had some high profile uh, deaths that took place from George Floyd um, to Breonna Taylor to Ahmaud Aubrey, And there was this um, blend of, of issues that happened at the same time, right? So you're getting hit with the global pandemic and then you're, you're seeing images on um, TV and recordings of individuals, you know, dying at the hands of law enforcement, Amar Aubrey was, you know, tracked down jogging through a community, you know, and I was, you know, I've been in um, this this field for, I guess, seven years um, officially and I'm watching on social media, like friends and people that I know and family members, like really having a hard time with this, like really having a difficult time processing it. And so, you know, I sat back and I was like, you know, I've worked in this, like my background is in my undergrad degree is in psychology, my master's is in health science. Um, so it's a public health degree. And I'm like, there's stuff I could do, right? <laughs> like I have, I'm not, you know, powerless to to see this. Like there's something, even if it's just small that I can do. And so I thought about creating, I created one video. It was just how to deal, you know, and cope, you know, currently with the pandemic and the ra racial injustice. And so I put it out and it was um, a big reception. I put it out on Facebook and it got a couple uh, thousand views. And I, I, I thought about it and I was like, I think I can do more. And so being home helped, um, you know, during the pandemic. And so I said, you know, I'm gonna try to create something from this. And um, it, that's, that's how the story goes. And it was birthed from that. And so what I try to do there is to just really practically lay out issues around black mental health that anybody can listen to and, and take in information like without the jargon without all that stuff like that kind of technical work i do that professionally nine to five which is fine and great but i wanted to have something where someone could send it to their grandparents somebody could have you know a, a younger child watch it and that they could you know get something from it and so um, there are a number of topics that we've addressed. Um, I had a couple of school counselors on to talk about taking care of young people during COVID. Um, I had did a video for individuals who are advocates and activists during that time, how to, for them to take care of themselves. Um, <clears throat> you know, we've done videos uh, with some other younger uh, Black therapists. We had them come on and talk about um, their career paths, what they see as issues with their clientele. Um, all of that kind of stuff, but um, it's really just 
a way for me to provide a free resource that can be far reaching and that um, can really have some impact um, on people wherever they are. What I love about that is that uh, with the people you have on your YouTube channel and the reposting you do on your Instagram, you're really utilizing the black voice. So when people are watching, they can say, oh, that person looks like me. And then um, they can identify with that because we know that a lot of times when uh, when it's someone that doesn't look like you or has experienced something similar to you in a different space, it might not be as easy to connect with. Um, and, and another individual uh, that we work with and have talked with, um, she goes around and does talks about her mental health experience and her journey as a Black student athlete um, and how she's kind of the, the first person to go around and talk to these individuals who maybe wouldn't talk about it before because it wasn't really allowed to be talked about. Um, so I really, really loved that. And obviously, um, you knew what you were doing when you were putting this together. So <laughs> I'm not saying anything like revolutionary to you. But um, as a person looking at all the ways I engage with content, um, and trying to think about how like we can as creators, uh, be creating more spaces for those people. Um, and I, I just really love being able to share what you've been putting out there. Yeah. It's so, it's so, it's so critical to do. And I, I really do feel like, you know, we, we hear all these buzz phrases now, but, um, you know, representation really does matter. Um, you know, for a long time, like just the topic of, of mental health and let alone suicide prevention or the word suicide was, um, not one that we talked about enough in, in our community. And there are a number of reasons for that. Um, that we can go into, and a lot of them, you know, is is history. There's historical trauma there. There's systemic things there. Like we, you know, we we understand those things, and um, and so it, we've seen these shifts where the number of clinicians who are um, African American are are increasing. We're starting to see these conversations and spaces where people of high profile, like Taraji P Henson started her own mental health foundation. Like, so we're starting to see this happen. And the more I can show people in my community, like this is, you know, this is who we have. These are the leaders that we have in our spaces doing this work, like the better it starts to break down some of the, the you know, built up stigma that we've, you know, seen for quite some time. Um, can you actually, can you expand a little bit on that, like stigma and what you've seen in the black community <laughs> Uh, the the stigma around mental health and how that has kind of shifted over however many years. Yeah, absolutely. So um, yeah, there there are a number of reasons for for this, and so um, you know, a lot of times we talk about the stigma is like the stigma is just that we just didn't talk about it in the black community. Um, and that wasn't necessarily the case. I mean, first of all. Um, we talk about the representation issue. There just wasn't um, uh, clinicians of color that were, you know, coming through the field, and those that were were booked almost instantly because they were um, such an anomaly. And so, we know from literature, we know from research, um, individuals of color do better with a clinician of color. <clears throat> and so, there there have been, you know, history of therapeutic. Um, therapeutic concepts that were harmful um, to people of color, um, in particularly African-Americans and American Indian and Alaska Natives, um, you know, there were certain, you know, theories that were 
um, that were harmful. At a certain point in time during the 1950s, um, there was a theory that talked about, you know, civil unrest being a part of a lack of uh, appreciation and almost a psychosis almost for individuals of color. During slavery, there's a ton of, of literature um, that uh, that you can look up that talks about uh, slaves who, who ran away from their slave owners had a mental condition, that it was a diagnosable mental condition. And this is all documented, you know, throughout history. And so like, as we, you know, even in looking at that time frame, um, you know, you're going to clinicians of color who have these, you know, theories that are taught in higher education and in these, you know, and in these systems. And disproportionately, African-Americans who were going into therapy were being um, diagnosed and of having some type of psychosis, especially schizophrenia, um, you know, with, you know, delusions of, you know, fear and like systemic racism was seen as like a construct that people were making up. Um, you know, because of psychosis and you put that out there and people aren't just, aren't going to engage into the system. It's, it's just not, um, it's just not going to happen. And we all know that, you know, we're kind of more familiar with the physical, um, health implement, uh, uh, implications, um, you know, as, you know, Tuskegee study and Henrietta Lacks and, and all of those things, like we're, we're more accustomed to talking about those, but the same type of things were happening on the mental health aspect and in the therapeutic setting. And um, it, it created this separation of, you know, this wasn't for us, but it wasn't just for us, not for us because we thought it, there were reasons behind it. And so a lot of us in our community, we gravitated towards the church. The church was a pillar um, in our community and things. And so people, you know, took to their, to their face, which is, you know, which is great, but we had this big separation from um, mental health practices, but now those environments are safer. We have more clinicians of color. People are understanding uh, more how anti-racism plays into the therapeutic process and, you know, cultural humility also is a part of that as well, where, you know, versus cultural competency of like, you know, I know your rituals and things and I can speak on those and cultural humility, which is more so of like, I mean, I know everything about your culture, but I want to know how it impacts you. I want to know what this means to you. And so we're, we're seeing these shifts. And so now it's a safer, it's a safer environment. So, so talk a little bit about um, what makes you so passionate about this topic and how you actually got into this space. Yeah. So um, it's, it's really a passion, a passion topic for me. Uh, you know, just because I lived it. So I'm I'm from Baltimore, I'm born and raised. There's, um, you know, I've I've been here my whole life, and you know, you see how you know we talk about you know systemic racism, how these different things come into come into play, and how they impact um, you know communities, and how they um, you know from education to housing to finances. Um, you know, to, to, to health and access to health and, you know, all of those things and, and living in Baltimore kind of gives you a case study on all of that. Like you can <laughs> kind of step back and see, you know, how some of these historical practices have literally shaped the city. Um, and so, you know, for me, I, I saw, in a, you know, Baltimore does have, have its issues with, with violence and community violence, which most major metropolitan cities do. Um, but, I could see like the mental health impacts of it. Like I could kind of see and, and get, um, 
a handle on some of that and how it how it went, how it impacted, um, you know, some of my friends. You know, I've, you know, known people who have died, to, you know, to, at the hands of gun violence and things. And so my career when I was an undergrad at Morgan State, an HBCU here in Baltimore, um, my final project in, in undergrad was around community violence and mental health. Like, how did it impact anxiety, depression, um, PTSD symptoms, those things like that. And so, um, you know, so then when I went to go get my master's at Johns Hopkins, I really wanted to carry that that piece with me. Um, and so I did work on, on that and it was a part of my master's thesis. And, you know, I just haven't seen what I saw and growing up, how I did and seeing those things. And my parents did great a great fantastic job of like shielding us from it um you know that we weren't involved in it but we still saw it and so like I wanted to um you know impact my community it wasn't a conversation that we were having it was just something that we could notice and so I wanted to you know impact that especially with um you know with our kids and so it's it's just kind of followed me throughout my career and so I was able to before I went to SAMHSA I was the director of suicide and violence prevention for the state of Maryland and got to do that work there. And really, you know, and as I've gotten into this work, this topic, especially black youth suicide has just blossomed. Um, people are paying more attention now more than ever. And so for me to take an issue that we're not talking about, that's impacting us disproportionately at this point for our younger kids. Um, you know, I really just want to be a part of the change, the change in conversation, the change in, in those rates, a hundred percent, and you know, be a part of that solution. Yeah. Well, we're so appreciative that you uh, that you're so passionate about it. I know, you know, for myself, it it makes a huge difference when it's like your mission in life that I'm going to change this. I I have the ability to do it. I have the background, and I'm gonna I'm gonna go out there and I'm gonna work really hard to educate people and to put my heart and soul into it to hopefully see some impact. So thank you. No, no problem. <laughs> Passion is like so important in this field of in this field of work. You can't mm-hmm. do it if you don't care about it. <laughs> it is. It's tough. It's I tell people it's it's heavy. Like it's um you know, even, you know, there are you, you kind of build this community of people like yourselves, like the community I have with you all and others like who who do this work and like you'll have those moments where like everybody has had that moment socially where someone has asked you what you do for a living and you say you work in suicide prevention and there's like this hush <laughs> that yeah. happened and people don't know what to say how to respond to it it's just like oh that that must be tough or oh like thanks doing that because I couldn't do it you know and you it, it's those days like when it feels like the rates aren't shifting where it feels like not enough people are engaging like it takes you know like the passion piece like helps you push forward on those days where it feels like it's pretty tough yeah mm-hmm. yeah absolutely um can you actually talk a little bit about like the the difference in rates of suicide in black youth and maybe just like youth in general um if you have those numbers if not of course that's totally fine <laughs> no sure um so uh, youth suicide just continues to be um, a major issue in the in the country, and so it's the second leading cause of death 
for individuals between, for young people between the ages um, of 10 to 24. And if you go into that next bracket, I believe if our most recent numbers is still second between 24 and 35. Um, but um, a major issue for our youth, um, suicide rates have um, increased in the country over the last 15 years, even so, um, the most recent data to come out the CDC is 2019, and we've actually seen a little bit of a leveling off, thankfully, not as much as we would want. Um, and obviously, you still have to pay attention to, you know, how some of those figures come about. And if there's, you know, kind of some room for error, um, you know, suicides still are most likely underrepresented. Um, if you look at that same chart of leading causes of death, when I say suicide is second, number one is accidental injuries. So death by accidental injuries. Some of those could be misclassified. Some of them could have been intentional. We just don't have enough information to make that distinction. <clears throat> On top of that, you know, we also have the issue of substance use. And, you know, there could be some overdoses who were classified as accidental, which could have been intentional. So theoretically, from the information that we have, suicide could actually be underrepresented despite the the high numbers that we that we already have. Um, and so with that and being such a big issue, what we've also seen that came out of a study that Jeff Bridge out of Ohio um, uh, came out with, I think in 2017, is that there had been this twofold increase in suicide deaths among African-American youth between the ages of five and 12. Um, and at the same time, white youth in that same age bracket has seen a decrease. And so uh, as a part of that, it was um, kind of a tough thing for the field to get its mind wrapped around because in public health, like that shit shouldn't happen. Like there shouldn't be <clears throat> a twofold increase, even if it's, you know, even if it's slight and it was slight and, and gradual, you know, over that time frame. But what we saw was this inverse relationship of, you know, Black youth having um, their increases and white youth having the, having the decreases. And for years, no one noticed it. No one paid attention to it. And so, um, you know, from there, there's been a lot of work to uh, to reduce those rates. A lot of attention has been focused there. Um, most notably, the Congressional Black Caucus um, gathered up a group of, of experts and released a report called Ring the Alarm, which really outlined um, you know, the issues that we were seeing, the limited amount of data, I mean, uh, research, mm -hmm. I should say, on the topic and steps for communities, government, um, research institutions to help um, impact that that increase. And so um, we're still a long way um, to go, but um, that's some of the, the things that we have been seeing over the past few years. It's really interesting. Yeah. It's uh, it's 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 is amazing. Uh, we were doing some work here in Cincinnati with some churches, um, you know, and I think that people are really starting to understand and to talk about this issue, which is a huge step forward, um, especially in the faith community. So I, you know, I think that that's a, I, I like the intersection of the work that you're doing with with that population as well. I think is so important. Yeah, it's a yeah, it's definitely a. Um one that we're seeing more of, like, as I go out and do presentations and talks, um, you know, people are sharing more, more stories about it. Um, while not in that age range, you know, I lost a, um, a mentee during COVID to, to suicide. Mm -hmm. Um, 
finishing up his about to finish his uh senior year in college you know and it was you know it was it was tough and so like we're having these conversations more and i've been you know asked to speak at other with other congregations who've had the same thing and so it's a a challenging thing um and it's tough you know that these rates have had to increase for us to kind of focus on it but um i can say that i have been um encouraged i should say by some of the shifting conversation and focus on this topic yeah it's can you talk a little bit about um some of the effects that covid's having in that population because a lot of times you know the the health impact has been much greater mm-hmm. um i think that um the schools a lot of the schools are um having issues going back into school which causes a lot of isolation and the parents are having to go to work and so the kids are by themselves mm-hmm. absolutely there's i mean there's a ton of um issues there i mean first and foremost we have um a group of of children across the country who are missing milestones um whether they be social benchmarks, whether they be um, milestones in education, such as graduations, proms, um, you know, going on to, to middle school, um, you know, I've, you know, a ton of uh, people who haven't been able to go to college or go to their campus who are looking forward to, um, to getting away. And I'm sure you all, you know, may remember those days where you're like, I'm leaving. Here we go. <laughs> Backing up. I'm getting out. And then the global pandemic says not quite. And so, you know, like, so you have, you know, that there too. And so you have a number of youth who, um, you know, get their meals from school, who rely on, you know, school lunches to, um, you know, to get their nourishment throughout the day. Um, and disproportionately, those are youth of color, whether they be African-American, Latinx, um, Native American, uh, American Indian populations, um, you know, it's another one. So we have, you know, those, those issues there. Um, the other one that I've, I've been talking about a lot is this issue around grief and loss. So disproportionately, African Americans have been impacted by COVID along with American Indian and Alaska Native um, individuals. And so what you're having is youth who are experiencing grief and loss unexpectedly and with some of the data that we have we can you know we've seen things with younger african-american children where particularly uh, a crisis um upcoming in the next couple of weeks or a crisis that just happened in the previous couple of weeks um disproportionately puts them at a greater risk um, for suicidal ideation and so if you take that data point and you overlap it with COVID, where family members unexpectedly um, who may not have been in a a position of of ill health or have a major um, underlying health condition can become sick. Um, You have youth who are trying to navigate that now. They have to figure out, you know, this person's gone, whether it it be an immediate family member, it could be a grandparent, aunt, uncle, um, you know, what have you, or someone they have connections with. And so we know how important those other connections um, are so you talk about coaches, you talk about mentors, you know, you talk about educators, um, those people like that, clergy members, you know, um, all of those bring up this grief and loss piece. And so, trying to you know wrap your head around 
you know, caring for youth. And so, you know, we've all heard these terrible stories of individuals who get sick, go into the hospital and no one can visit them. And then they pass like that's there's the grieving process is even starting different, like, you know, like for, for this population. And so, you know, we have that. And then another thing that I mentioned, the Washington Post, I guess it was June or July, posted some information on a survey um, that talked about individuals who, um, you know, how people felt about the mask mandate. Um, and so one of the questions that they had was, um, you know, a percentage of individuals who were worried or concerned that they would be seen as being suspicious wearing a mask inside of a store. And so disproportionately, Asian Americans and African Americans, African Americans um, talked about feeling worried or concerned about having a mask on in different places. Obviously, two different reasons why we know a lot of the stereotypical rhetoric that came out with Asian Americans and just the natural criminality that associates itself with um, young African Americans, like they had disproportionately higher percentages of feeling worried and suspicious. And so when we talk about, you know, disparities and how these things come into play, everybody should feel comfortable with their mask mandate, right? It's a mandate. Everybody, everybody should feel comfortable doing it, but it's not the case. It's not the reality. So you have those additional things as well. And so those are some of like the added, you know, stresses and things. And, and Nancy, you mentioned also, um, you know, parents having to work additional jobs disproportionately. Um, uh, individuals of color are more likely to have a job where they have to be essential, where they have to go in, um, which leads to, you know, children having to have more responsibility on top of trying to do things virtually and don't even have to mention the digital divide that we have. So there's so, it's so layered and so many different things that are a part of that. So, um, so yeah, we definitely have to wrap our our minds, our resources, our hearts, our care, our programming um, into making sure that we're taking care of our youth during this uh, weird time. Yeah, it's like we're doing a lot of work in schools and mm -hmm. that's really where a lot of the concentration is, is how do we support that, you know, that, that group of people who um, have all of these factors that are coming into play all of a sudden. Mm -hmm. um, and how do you help overcome that in some way? It's hard. It is because it's really no hard. one has like that wide range of what I just mentioned isn't everything. And there's so many different sectors of like, well, how do you tackle this? I'll, you know, it's, right. it's a lot. But like, even as a person who wants to help somebody, right? Like um, you can't invite someone into your home right now because of COVID. Um, there's not like that village aspect that's so important. Yeah. yeah, yeah. The the village is tough because of the COVID, and we see this a lot too with individuals who, I mean, families of individuals who die from you know COVID or what what have you. Like that grieving process of everybody coming over, like people bringing you food, and you know, so you don't have to worry about cooking, and you know, people are just there to take care of you know the house. They're like, I'll clean up. You you know, do what you need to do, et cetera. People can't do that, and that's it's missing you know, right now. So right. let's, um, let's kind of like shift a little bit to talk about the ways that maybe like parents who are working that 
job that is an essential worker position, like maybe they're a nurse, like work in a restaurant, whatever it is. Um, what can those people do to help take care of their children's mental health? And like, what are, what are some of the positive things that we can do to address some of these challenges? I mean, definitely one thing I would say is as much as possible, maximizing the time that we, that we do have, like on those days that they're, you know, maybe not working or, you know, before they go to work, like maximizing like that, that time of, you know, connection and building that up and trying to, you know, foster relationships where, you know, you can talk or just do something, you know, do something distracting or, you know, or fun and try to create some things um, and some experiences, you know, either virtually. So having friends um, or your kids' friends, like connect with them uh, virtually. I know people have been doing virtual like clubhouses for their kids and having their friends like, you know, get up online and, you know, parents can, you know, coordinate that and say like each one of us, you know, individually, like buy some, you know, ice cream or buy some pizza and do something and they have like a virtual um, pizza party there. I think conversation is important right now. Like any of us who have kids, I have a seven-year-old, a nine-year-old, any of us who have kids, and I work with teenagers, and I know teenagers, and I love teenagers, <laughs> but we know teenagers are very famous for the one-word answer. Wow. You know, are you good? <laughs> Fine. How's it going? Good. You know, everything good? Yep. You know, <laughs> so, you know, trying to give them some open-ended questions is 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 a good way um another one and i'm gonna forget i think it's the gentle institute but if you look up in google feelings wheel or feelings chart like you know asking you know your kids like you know one thing that i um i got from a friend of mine is you know ask someone what are your top three feelings or emotions that you felt today it completely changes the conversation like when the, when the first time he asked me I paused and I was like I, I don't know like let, let me think about that like let me you know do that we've done that uh, with the youth that I work with you know virtually and they did the same thing but you get so much more out of that you, you have the ability to make follow-up questions you know and then for parents I tell people you know definitely just remind your kids that you're that safe space they may not want to talk to you at a given moment. They may be stressed out and don't want to talk to you. I would say encourage them to talk to someone that they're close to that they, you know, have a connection with instead of holding it until they're ready to talk to you. And, you know, I've seen it more often than not that kids, when they're ready, they know their parents are an okay place to go to. And they may not give it to you in the way that you expected or the way that you would want from an adult. It may come in just the quickest of sentences that they may not feel the best. Um, but, you know, take it, listen non-judgmentally and, you know, and, and take those things as well. Like I tell people, just create the environment. They'll choose when to walk in the door. They'll choose when to to do that. And, and it's OK. Um, you know, oftentimes I tell people, you know, we have to give our kids more credit. You know, they're very in tune with themselves and know what's going on. It's just making sure that they know that they can come to you without judgment and that, um, you know, they can share what they have, but, and definitely, um, you know, building connections. I think another piece of it is parents taking care of themselves, you know, 
talk to somebody else, like talk to another parent, like, you know, start a parent group if you need to. A lot of schools are doing it, um, you know, as well. But having those opportunities to share because, you know, it's hard. We don't have the answers. We're trying to figure this pandemic stuff out. We're trying to, you know, survive and get to the end of whatever this looks like, you know, trying to to get to that point also. And so um, sometimes that, that comes out when dealing with our kids because we're stressed we're tired, we're confused, we don't have all the answers. And so, um, you know, understanding that. And, I, and another one too, um, it sounds really, you know, really, really simple, but apologizing. In times where you're stressed and you, you know, have a short moment with your kid, it's okay to go back and say, I'm, I'm sorry, like, look, I'm stressed too. Like I'm, you know, I have to run out and get this. You know, I had to wipe down all the groceries when I bring them in the house. Like, <laughs> you know, this mask makes me hot. I wear glasses. And so, like, there's, like, fog everywhere. Like, just leveling and just saying, like, I'm in this with you. Like, I, I get this, too. I can make mistakes in this, too. Um, it means so much, um, you know, to our young people. So, um, but, yeah, those would be some of the quick and tangible things that parents can do. Yeah. <laughs> that happened to me yesterday. <laughs> My son was like, I was like, you are driving me nuts. You need to do your breathing to calm down. And he goes, Bob, you need to do your breathing. <laughs> and I'm literally like, and you know, I was just like, you're right. I did. Right. <laughs> you're just like, Shay. <laughs> That's the one. Just creating that like open, honest space is so important. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. You can't replace that with anything else. Um, And I also wanted to circle back on one thing. Uh, Is there a way for people who are listening to support the work that you're doing for Black Mental Wellness Lounge? Yes. Um, Yeah, absolutely. If individuals want to get connected to the lounge, I would say, you know, they can go to YouTube and type in the Black Mental Wellness Lounge will come up. Um, Also, um, we're at uh, YouTube.com slash C slash uh, the Black Mental Wellness Lounge uh, to get that link. But um, definitely subscribe, like, share. I feel like a young YouTuber, like a <laughs> a kid opening up toys, right, for other kids. But uh, <laughs> subscribing, like, you know. <laughs> and we'll yeah, put def- that in the show notes, too, so so people can yes, okay. click down below. You guys don't have no, to be that all <laughs> Yeah, so so definitely um, do that and just, you know, share it with people if you, you know, feel that they, um, you know, may need it. Like there's, um, you know, some different stuff coming up. Like I'm going to be doing a couple um, roundtables with some some folks on some different topics. So I'll be doing that. And um, whenever I get this graphic figured out, I'm launching a... um, a piece on it that is definitely going to, like a series that's going to be focused on um, giving, you know, advice and recommendations and things to other um, young Black professionals who are interested in the mental health and public health fields. Um, so just general things, the things that we've, you know, had to navigate, like, you know, dealing with workplaces, um, networking, um, you know, finding resources, um, you know, getting different experiences, internships, all that good stuff. and. Um, so I've always wanted to give back more in that regard. So I'm I'm actively building that out. So whenever I finish this graphic sometime this week, it'll, <laughs> it'll be out. 
But yeah, so so Brandon, I want to thank you for being with us here today. We love your advice and your experience in this arena is so enlightening for all of us. I want to thank you for spending the time with us today. No, no, no problems at all, Nancy. I just appreciate the the opportunity, and again, thank you all for the work that that you all are doing um, and the amazing initiatives that you all have going on as well. Thank you so much for listening. To learn more about this episode, you can check out our show notes and access additional information on our website at 1n5.org. We ask that you please subscribe, rate, write a review, or share this podcast with anyone you think may be interested in hearing more about how we are changing the mental health landscape. Again, I'm Nancy. And I'm Kayla. And we hope you'll join us next time.